You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. My name is Peter Lawrence, and this is The Fabulous Invalid. Welcome to The Fabulous Invalid, a Broadway-centric podcast where we take a 360-degree view of the theater through interviews with actors, writers, directors, designers, and everyone in between. I'm theater savant Jamie Dumont. And I'm Rob Russo, writer and theater critic with Stage Left at NYC. Hi, Rob. Hi, Jamie. Theater savant Jamie Dumont. I know. It rhymes. You've switched it up. Well, that's your new title. Hey, Playbill said it, so I'm going with it. That's right. That's right. We were very honored to be uh, noted among the 12 podcasts of the Broadway Podcast Network that you should check out on Playbill.com. Absolutely, yes. As part of the Broadway yeah. Podcast Network, as you just said, right? Yeah. Jennifer got Tony nominee. I got theater critic. You got theater savant. Well, I'm I'll take jealous. it. I'll take it. I know, right? <laughs> it's pretty funny. Um, well, before we dive into our um, interview, something I've been wanting to get off my chest for some time now, and I've been oh, building up the, the, um, the, the, the courage to... Lay my cards out there. This is a safe space, Rob. It, it's, it's a very safe space. I feel very safe right now. I have, for a long time, been having this little debate with myself about the proper word to use when talking about describing the experience of going to the theater. Do you see a show or do you watch a show? And it's a semantic thing, totally. And I've come to the conclusion that it doesn't matter. But I will say that I still sort of have a, I like, you know, I sort of sit up a little straighter when someone says watch. Because I always say see, like 95% of the time, I see a show. I watch a movie, but I see a show. I was just going to say that same exact thing. Swamped with your bills, late with your rent. Watch Betty Davis run out on George Brent. See Fred Astaire step in and style when everything's dark and upset. Go calling on Clark and Claudette. Just go to a marvelous movie and smile. I've never thought about this, yeah. but I do watch a movie and I see a show. Yeah, I don't know. There's something about the fact that it's live, maybe, that you see something that's live, but you watch something. That's pre-recorded. I don't know. I mean, I what what's tripped me up about it is that I every once in a while I will say watch. Like, well, I was you know I was sitting there watching you know Katrina Lank do something, or you know was, was that, watching. Adrian isn't that Warren just good grammar? That. Because you wouldn't say I'm seeing Katrina Lank. Well, you're right. I don't know. So that's why I'm saying maybe it's semantic and it doesn't matter. Anyway. Got it off my chest. It's no, a no, tiny no, no, little no. point. You don't get to walk away from this so what? so quickly. <laughs> what prompted this? No, I, it's just something I've noticed. Um, no, no, no. There has to be a specific trigger. Why did you? Why did you? I can't point to it. the moment I first thought of it, but I in in conversations with people, in reading people's writing, or um, listening to other podcasts when people talk about you know the experience of going to the theater. Um, every once in a while, someone will say, you know, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to watch Slave Play tomorrow on Broadway. They'll tweet that. 
And I'm like, watch? I don't know. You, do, you, do you watch Slave Play or do you see Slave Play? You see right? Slave well, Play. Yes, I and do. Slave Play sees, sees you. you. Well, yes, that's, that's real. <laughs> but I don't know. So it's something I've thought about. I mean, if there's anyone listening to the show who is like a linguist and can actually, you know, instruct us as to whether or not it is something that actually, you know, if there is a real distinction there. Yeah, please tweet to us or yeah. do you tweet at us? Well, that's a whole, you know, do you get in line or are you online, you know? I mean, that's a whole thing. Oh, we could do this all day. We really could. But today, uh, what we are doing is talking to Peter Lawrence. I'm so excited. I am really excited. Um, Who is Peter Lawrence, Rob? Well, I'm glad you asked, Jamie. Uh, <laughs> he is um, like the reigning sort of dean of, of of stage managers on Broadway. Quite literally, because yeah. he teaches at Columbia. Well, there you go. There you go. I like that. Um, no, so, I mean, he has a career that has spanned over four decades uh, in the theater. Um, he's stage managed over 30 shows on Broadway. He served as an associate director. Um, and his credits range, you know, from, you know, doing five Neil Simon plays, which is pretty remarkable. Um, you know, the revivals of Zorba, Ain't Misbehaving, Annie Get Your Gun, and Ragtime. The original productions of Sunset Boulevard, Spamalot and Shrek, um, the 2012 revival of Annie which I know is a show very near and dear to your heart. Uh, and most recently, just this season, uh, See Wall of Life on Broadway. Um, so, I mean, he's, he's done it all. He's done plays, he's done musicals, he's worked with the greats. Um, he literally wrote the book. He did. Uh, his book is called Production Stage Management for Broadway, From Idea to Opening Night and Beyond. Um, I haven't finished the whole thing, but I've been reading it in preparation for this interview. And oh my God, I have learned so much. If you are even mildly interested... Google it. Am, you know, go on Amazon and buy a copy. Uh, production stage management for Broadway. It's incredible. He also is a 2013 Tony honoree for excellence in the theater. Um, so it's you know one of the exciting things about doing this podcast is that we get to sit down with like the experts in the field, right? So uh, as part of our mission to give a 360 degree view of the theater, this is the first time we're sitting down with a stage manager. Yeah, I'm excited. Yeah, well, let's do it. Great. Peter, thank you so much for coming down today. Yes. Um, our co-host Jennifer Smart, who you know well, couldn't be with us. I'm sadly, so sad. About I know because you no. guys have worked together. Is there a funnier human being? No, absolutely not. <laughs> no, I agree with that. Yeah. I agree with that. I just saw her recently in Mean Girls. I caught up with it, which I hadn't done before. And Samard was so wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. There's, oh, yeah. there's, we, we've mentioned this on the show several times, but there's a moment at the end of the show where her character, the teacher, Miss Norberry, belts out a note. And you can hear the whole audience go, whoa. She can had, sing too. They knew yeah. she was funny, yeah. right? But they didn't know that she had this unbelievable voice. There is nothing she can't do. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, We're we're big fans. And she's sorry that she couldn't be here. Me too. Says says hello. (laughs) Thank you. Um, Before we get started, you are a production stage manager. Um, Tell us a little bit about what that is. Production stage manager really refers to the head stage manager who originates a production. That's where it sort of comes from. Now, production stage managers use sort of interchangeably to say the head production on any show. That is, you can be the, re- the fourth replacement and still be called the production stage manager. But it basically now means the head stage manager. There's a guy named Charlie Blackwell, a name you might not even know, but he was the first black PSM for, uh, on Broadway. And um, he worked for David Merrick. And he was the one who was first given that title, production stage manager. Wow. So it dates back to what, the, the 60s? 50s. The 50s. Late 50s. That's right. Wow. Yep. So a production stage manager, obviously that job stays 
throughout the show. But you, for example, don't stay with a show for its entire run, correct? Right. What's What's interesting about the term as well, uh, Actors' Equity doesn't have the term production stage manager. There's no such word in the rule book. But um, I started um, using that, I mean, as soon as I could. Got a story about that. Well, I did, I started off doing dinner theater. And um, my grandmother came to see a dinner theater production for which I was the stage manager. And she said, Peter, I couldn't find your name in the program. So I started getting title page billing, and I always call it my grandma clause. Wow. <laughs> I love that. And production stage manager looks good also on the billing. The weird thing is <clears throat> that as production stage manager, when you leave the production, you can no longer be billed as production stage manager because you are not, in fact, a stage manager on the show. Mm. So I started calling myself things like production supervisor. I was often associate director. I've been a number of different things on the show in order to retain my billing. Mm. You know, it's funny because I, I noticed that when I was going through your credits, at a certain point, production supervisor popped up. And I that's made a right. note, oh, I've got to ask him if that's a different role. That's why. That's why. That's why. And also, I really learned from my grandma, of mm. course, get your name on the title page because then people will remember you. Yeah. Well, so I do. Solid advice. Grandma knows what's best. Right? Yes, yeah. she did. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's interesting. I think that um, people who are sort of casually involved in theater or are just fans might not have um, an accurate idea of what it is that a stage manager or a production stage mm -hmm. manager does on a daily basis and, and what the sort of lifespan of the involvement with the production is. Someone might think that once the show is in the theater, the production manager shows up and just runs backstage, Right. But from reading your fabulous book, <laughs> um, even I learned a lot that I didn't realize about how the production stage manager is with the production far before it arrives in a theater. Could you talk us through sort of the, the timeline of how a, a production stage manager is involved in a show? Sure. Often, I'll get a call for a job, and that job won't actually start me on contract for two or three years. Oh, wow. Because there's a lot of early involvement. Sometimes it involves being involved with the um, design of the show. That is, for instance, on Spamalot, I was heavily involved with Tim Hatley, who was the designer on the show. We had many meetings with Gino Donovan and Tim Hatley, just working out how that show would work. Uh, and later with the lighting designer and even with the costume designer on a show like Shrek. So there are early meetings that have to do uh, mostly with schedule. So how long is it going to take to do this thing? Cameron McIntosh had this great, I worked for Cameron for five years, and he had this great um, sort of way of looking at a production that it had to be 12 months from the moment in which he committed money to the show until the opening night on Broadway. That is, it couldn't be any less than that. And so often what I will do is a producer will say when they want the show to open, and I'll work backwards and say, okay, if it's going to open on this date, you go backwards through previews, through rehearsals, through out of town, through building the set, through rehearsing, through designing. And so I can usually give a fairly accurate date on when they would have to start designing the set in order to make a certain Broadway opening. So scheduling has a lot to do with what I do. Uh, in rehearsal, I schedule all the rehearsals according to what the director and the choreographer, if it's a musical, what they want, and the musical director. And then I'm responsible for getting the actors there on time <laughs> and being set up to do the thing that the director wants to do. During technical rehearsals, then, I'm really the one who coordinates all the elements of the show together. That is, the, I've worked out with the scenic designer and the director the way in which the scenery will work and how long it will take to get from one scene to the next scene. And we'll let the musical director know how much music we'll need, you know, in terms of timing. 
So I'll tech the show. Um, as soon as the show is teched, then, of course, the director takes over again, and there's an enormous amount of rewriting and uh, sort of honing the show. And then uh, same thing during previews. We rehearse all through previews. But once the show is open, generally the creative team leaves. Um, off, I worked with a lot of British directors, and so they're not even in the country a lot of the time. <laughs> so um, then my job switches entirely from being a scheduling and technical person to being the surrogate for the director. And so I sort of act in loco parentis, you know, for the director and uh, do cast replacements, casting according to what I think the director would want. And I'm, of course, I'm in constant touch with the director during all that. But that's sort of it. Often I'll direct the national tours. Um, so it's a, it's kind of a, a long arc job. Are you putting people into the show at what, at that point when you're taking over and you're casting and, and supervising all those things, you're actually putting the actors into their tracks? I'm actually directing the actors. You're actually directing yeah. the actors. And quite often it depends. Um, I worked with Mike Nichols, as you may know, for 23 years and, uh, Mike would always come back at the end when the actor was ready to go into the show, have a look at the rehearsal and say, Pete. I'd like you to change these things, and I would. Um, sometimes, if um, I'll be putting people into a show and the director is nowhere to be found, they're off doing another show or something like that, so I'll simply get in touch with them, say, this is what I found. Are you okay with this casting? Um, I keep extensive casting notes that I also distribute to all the creative teams, so I can say, look on January 25th, 2019, Remember that person we auditioned and here are your notes on that person. Are you okay if I hire them for that track? There are a lot of things. But you know, So you wouldn't even have to audition them again? You'd already, the, the, the work had already been done. It's just a matter of referring to your notes and, and saying. If, and if it's close enough. That is, if it's, right. if it's not, if it had been two years or something like that, of course, we would see the person again. Or sometimes the director will insist, I need to see that person again. So the director will come in and we'll schedule the audition for them. But whatever, I work for the director. That's my job. And so sometimes they're available. And sometimes they just want me to go ahead and do it. And I'll do whatever it is they need me to do. Did you ever have an experience with Mike Nichols, for example, where you put somebody into the show and he came back and looked at it and said, perfect, done? Or did he always have something to add to it? It was great. When I put together with Casey Nicolau, we did the London production of Spamalot together. And uh, Mike came over to see the show. And uh, in previews, he saw it. And we were sitting together. And Mike... <coughs> literally the greatest human being I've ever known. And he, he put his hand on my shoulder during the show and he said, Pete, it's perfect. And I thought, okay, I can just go to heaven right now. You know? wow. But usually, of course, the directors have things, they want to put their own stamp on it and should. And also the actors want the director. I'm not the director. And they want the famous director. They want Gene Sachs or, or Mike Nichols or Sam Mendes to put their own stamp on it. And they deserve that. But I would imagine that one of the things that made you successful with Mike Nichols is the fact that you understood how he operated. You knew, or any director for that matter, you know what they want, right? So that's, so it's a, it's a synergy that you get with a director where you can kind of expect what he may be wanting out of someone, an actor, or just the show in general. And that's how that working relationship builds and is, has such longevity. I think so. I also take extensive notes. Yeah. And I'll ask them if I'm not sure. I mean, I'll call the director and say, this is what I think, you know, on this. And also, Mike, especially, actually any good director, is always, always wants that actor to inhabit the part. That is, it's not replicating. It's making sure that the idea of the part, the idea of the character, 
um, is uh, properly embodied by the actor who's doing it. So Mike always wanted it to be fresh. Uh, Mike had this great thing that he would say. He said, um, he'd come in for notes and he'd say, okay, throw away all your babies. Everything that you love in the show, don't do it anymore. Let something else come in to replace it. Mike was the greatest that way. On Spamalot one time, he literally came in with the original cast. We've been running, I don't know, three or four months. And he said, and we're getting tremendous laughs on the show, and it was really a big hit. And Mike came in and he said, all right, I see that you all love the things you're doing. Tonight, I don't want you to do anything. I don't want you to inflect anything. I don't want you to do any of your bits of business. I don't want you to do anything. Just say the words. You're not funny. The script is. People did it that night, and we never in our lives got more laughs than we did that night. You're kidding. No, wow. we didn't do it. Was, and Mike would always say, it's the script that's funny. You aren't. So my job as the, you know, the associate director, the one who's standing in for the director, is to give that spirit to the show. You know, Mike, anyhow, Mike I, I, won't, I promise I won't quote him too much, but, but Mike said to me a number of times, he said, Pete, it's the job of the director to give the actor back their first impulse. The greatest thing you can ever say. So I took extensive audition notes. Mike would always say, too, the auditions will tell you who, the, who these characters are. You'll learn. So the auditions will tell you who the characters are, yeah. not the actors, the actual characters that they're auditioning for? Yeah. They'll come in and they'll say, uh, oh, I'll, I'll show you how to do this. I'll show you how to do this. Neil Simon, whom I did a lot of shows with, too, he said actors always claim their parts. So they'll come in and say, just sit back. I know how to do this. And they'll put you at ease. So it's really incredible to hear how closely the stage manager works with the director oh, yeah. and, and how, you know, I think uh, the perception that I alluded to earlier that, you know, that the stage manager is just calling cues just, but, you know, right. he's backstage calling cues is like a fraction yes. of, of the especially totality. Especially after the show opens, yes, especially. Is of the totality of the role. Yeah. Um, I was struck in reading your book about how much of it is, um, is about leadership and tone setting and yes. sort of almost, you know, the politics of it all, not to use politics in a, in a crass way, yeah. but, you know, sort of knowing how to manage people and how to set an example. Um, can you speak to how, how that? You bet. Yeah. You bet I can. <laughs> you wrote the book about it. Yeah. You're prepared, but you know, how that comes into play. Well, the American style stage management is different from how they do it in England or Australia or anyplace else. Stage managers in England, the production stage manager actually works the deck. That is, doesn't call the show at all. And it's entirely a technical job. So often when I work with British stage or British directors, they're hesitant to speak to me about anything artistic. Um, in America, the idea was always that everything upstage of the proscenium arch was the purview of the stage manager. So not only technical, but artistic and also the social and um union welfare of the actors. So I've always taken that as my marching orders. So I think that I'm responsible for everything upstage. So if the company is getting uptight about things or exhausted, I'll throw a margarita party. <laughs> you know, if, they're, if we're having understudy rehearsals and there are just too many understudy rehearsals, I'll bring a pizza. If there's a fight to be had, 
um, with management. I don't want the deputies going to Actors' Equity. I want to have that fight with management myself. I represent them. I'm an Actors' Equity member. They're my, that's my union. So I want to take care of literally everything that happens upstage at the proscenium arch, and I think that's my job. Wow. <laughs> but artistic, technical, social, you name it. Yeah. It's so, so funny because they're very different things in a lot of ways, right? There's the technical aspect of your job, and then there's the artistic aspect. And if you look at it rationally, for lack of a better way to put it, they don't seem like they should go together. But of course, they have to, because that's how the that's how theater is made. But I don't think people know that. I think I think people would be surprised. Well, then they should buy my book. <laughs> they should absolutely buy your book. It's very interesting. Um, it's also filled with great stories. You, you yes. certainly, you Pepper certainly have known. Yes. Yes. Well, I mean, you can't spend time with the the people you've spent time with: Mike Nichols, Gene Sachs, Neil Simon. Mm. Cameron McIntosh. I mean, those are just to name a few. Sam Mendes. Sam Mendes. Yeah. Talking about a legendary British director. Right. <laughs> I mean, you can't work with these people and not um, absorb a lot from them, I would imagine. I'm a lucky man. You know, I may, I'm, I'm not a trained stage manager at all. I made this up. So... I think I say that in the book, don't I? You do. But for, for, for the people who have not read your book, um, tell us how you actually got into this business. Well, my MFA is in directing. And um, I got it at the University of Hawaii. And I went then. It's a long story. So are you I'm from Hawaii? Or are you no, just, no, I'm from okay. Ohio. I'm from those boring places on earth. But we all left, you know. Yeah. So um, Hawaii is quite a jump. It's quite a jump. Anyhow, what happened was I applied to Michigan State, uh, Stanford Rep, and Hawaii for all different reasons. Uh, Michigan State, because Phoenix, the Phoenix company, was in residence there, Ellis Rabb's company from the 60s. So they were in residence there. Stanford had a great repertory company, and I was very interested in Asian theater. And the University of Hawaii had the best English-speaking Asian theater department in the world. Um, so I got accepted at all three. Stanford rep folded up. The Phoenix left Michigan State. And I thought, well, I guess I better go to Hawaii. <laughs> so I went, uh, got an MFA, and I founded a theater, co-founded a theater company with five other people. It's still running there. It's called the Manoa Valley Theater, and it's still running there. And then I thought, um, I think I want to be a drama critic. So I applied to the morning newspaper. There are 30, at the time, I thought there were 38 theaters on the island of Oahu. None mm -hmm. of them professional, semi-professional. And I was their drama critic for the morning paper for a year. So um, I was going to leave Hawaii. I put together a book of my reviews. I thought, I'm moving to New York, and I'm going to be a drama critic, you know? <laughs> so, well, I was too dumb to know it doesn't work that way. Right. No. So, uh, anyway, I moved to New York, and I, was, I had a survival job um, in the box office at of the old Mercer Arts Center, the one that fell down in 1973. Literally fell down? Literally fell down. Oh, it my was gosh. the back half of the Broadway Central Hotel. And until the World Trade Center came down, it was the biggest structural collapse in the history of New York City. Anyhow. Um, That's one a day, this, fact, by the way. Yeah. This, this stage manager named Harvey Medlinski, who had been Mike Nichols' original stage manager on beginning with Barefoot in the Park, and was now um, had fallen on hard times and was stage managed the off-Broadway production of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. He came into the to the box office and said, "I need a stage manager for a chain of dinner theaters that I'm doing and working with me, and we're going to go around and uh, do all these shows." And I said, "What does it pay?" And it was more than I was making in this box office. And I said, oh, I'm a stage manager. So I made it up as I went along. And um, I worked with Harvey for a number of years. And um, one thing led to another. Uh, dinner theater led to stock. And stock led to off-Broadway. And off-Broadway led to Broadway shows. I did my first Broadway show in 1977. So 
I just have to stop you right there because I think we're 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 missing a very important part of your story <laughs> or glossing over it, which is that you had no experience in stage management at all. That's right. And you got the job and took the job. Yes. That could never happen today. Well, could it? it? I don't, it depends on what level you're talking about. Mm. I mean, I didn't begin as a Broadway stage manager. This was dinner theater, and it was because of my directing experience that I got this job. Because Harvey and I would do a new show literally every two weeks. And I would, I would cast it. There were no casting directors. I would bring in everybody. And I would call. It was great. In those days, I would call the agents and say, all right, I've got two $300 a week jobs, two men. I've got two $400 a week jobs. And they would send me their $300 or $400 people. <laughs> and we would cast. That's how we cast. Yeah. I was the casting director, too. And then I would restage it for Arena de Proscenium and things like that. Yeah. So it just happened. I don't know how to say. Mm. The thing about stage management, I believe, is just about keeping your eyes open. I think... Most rational people, if they want to do this job, and I think you have to love actors and you have to love the theater. You just have to love it. If you love it and you keep your eyes open, you can do this job. Do you think, you said earlier that, you know, you're, you take extensive notes, notes, and I would assume you're a list maker and a planner and all of those things. Calendars. I, calendars. <laughs> I would assume that's essential to what you do. It is. Right. It, it, and, and that goes for anybody who wants to be a production manager. I mean, you have to take notes. You have to be organized on this, on this level, correct? You do. And um, I'm also a bit of a control freak in that way that I like to control the whole event. That is, many production stage managers don't do their own, for instance, calling script, the, the script that you do to figure out how to call the show, right? And those are extensive documents that you do. Some don't do their own calendars. Some don't do their own um, weekly schedules and um, their weekly reports and things like that. I do all those things myself because I think my job is to stand astride the event. And artistically, managerially, technically, everything. What does a call script look like? Mm, I, there's an example in the back of the book. Um, I've got, I think I've got Annie in the back of the book, an um, example on that, for which, by the way, I got permission from Martin Charnin and Tom Meehan to put that in the book. <laughs> but um, in, 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 and buy the book and look at the call script. <laughs> but, but if you were to tell me what it looks like, like it's a document that literally writes out every single thing that happens, correct? N no, every, there are two different documents. One is a, a blocking script, a staging script, in which it, in a margin or however you choose to do it, you're going to put every move that's in the show, what every actor is doing at every moment. And usually at the top or at the bottom of the page, I'll put in what the emotional temperature of that scene is too. That mm. is what the director had said about it. A calling script is a different thing. All it is is every technical cue that's in the show. Um, uh, set moves, lighting, sound, often prop moves, often wardrobe moves. But all those things are in the script in a way in which you're following the script, and those cues are on different words in the script, and you're calling all the lighting cues, all the set moves, and everything. But it's all there in the script. Is, is that a standardized no. note-taking system? It is not. In fact, I just thought every... it was really interesting. Up at Columbia, um, I just did a whole course, two-day, two-session uh, course, on how to write a calling script and in the computer because I believe that you have to be able to email that thing to people. Mm. And also, I used to have this fear before, because I go back before computers, I used to have this fear that, because you, you did it in pencil then, that I would lose that script. Right. So I would obsessively like make a Xerox of the, of the script or sometimes have somebody make a pencil copy of the script. Wow. But now with, um, the, I do it in the computer. And so I can, it's always there. You have your old handwritten or your old typed out call scripts, do you not? I do. Yeah. I do. I have them 
the um, I have one. I did Timbuktu, which was the Black Kismet that Jeffrey Holder yep. directed yeah. and choreographed. Oh, yes. That's right. Oh, yeah. Whom I love. Saw in Chicago. Did you really? I did, yeah. At the Airy Crown? Yeah, at the Airy Crown, yes. I did In like 77 or 78? 78, that was me. Really? Oh, yeah, oh, that wow. was me. Made of fruit, possessing a cute acumen, winsome and winning in the beginning, woman, woman. Do you, you remember the curtains would not fly, they would draw yeah. at the Airy Crown? I do. So um, the first performance we did, which was our opening night, they drew the curtain off, it wrapped around my call desk and ripped it right out of the floor <laughs> and off stage. Oh. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Oh, I love doing that show. But anyhow, that was in pencil. Oh, wow. Because that was, for me, pre-computer. My first computer was in 1985. I was doing a play called Rumors, a Neil Simon play. Sure. We were trying out in uh, San Diego at the Old Globe. And I thought, I want to learn how to operate a computer. Mm. So I bought a computer, a Zenith, which had a huge hard drive of 20 megabytes. <laughs> 20 <laughs> megabyte. Can you imagine this? Yeah. <laughs> you know, our phones couldn't operate on this now. So, um, and I taught myself Microsoft Word, typing the entire script into Microsoft Word. And I made all my mistakes. Oh my I learned how to do it. Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. Well, I, you know, you've, you've mentioned at this point in the interview like a dozen different theaters. Um, and over the course of your 40 years doing this, I'm sure you've probably been in every type of theater that you can imagine. Um, I haven't done cruise ships. Okay. All right. All right. So there's one, <laughs> one, one, one bucket list I'm left to do. Uh, one thing that, that struck me uh, going through your book was how much of the job also entails managing space mm. and how you know, uh, precious space is, especially backstage. If you've, if you've ever been backstage at a Broadway theater, you know it's very, very tight. Um, of the Broadway houses that you've worked in, uh, do you have a favorite? And um, what makes one better than another in terms of backstage space? First, it's a really good question. No, I really mean it. That was a really smart question. The, my favorite theater has nothing to do with backstage. It has to do with the, the house rake. The, because people have to be able to see or they get restless. The best house rake in New York City is the Ethel Barrymore Theater. <laughs> you don't know this, but that's my favorite theater. I'm always ready Well, it is mine, which is why I'm saying it. And Nichols was the first one to point this out to me, that what a great house rake that is. And since the renovation, it's also one of the most beautiful in New York City. But I really love, I just, I love that theater because in a way, it almost doesn't matter what your backstage space is because the designer is going to design to that space. So you know long before you go into rehearsal or have the set built what theater you're going into, and it's designed to that space. The hardest thing is when you go out of town right. and you're in like um, the opera house at Kennedy Center, right? <laughs> right? And you have football fields on either side. <laughs> what I always do is lay out the walls of the theater we're going into backstage. And we never go outside those walls. Mm. I don't want to store anything outside those walls. I, you know, we have to solve the problems within that box. So you redefine the space in whatever theater in yep. to make it manageable for whatever you need to accomplish. That's right. And if you're on the road, if you do a national tour, of course, you're playing 50 different theaters, right. you know, in a couple of years. So you always send, uh, usually I do it myself, to the production carpenter, production electrician, and myself will go around and visit the next few theaters ahead. We will send a tech package which says, which says, 
these are the, our minimum requirements for the show. If you don't make those minimum requirements, we can't do the show there. And sometimes they lie. So you get there and it's not <laughs> oh, no. nearly big enough. And often I've had to, along the national tour of Annie, which I did, um, and I did Zorba on the road too, we had to leave pieces of scenery sometimes on the truck because there wasn't enough room to do it. So you just simply leave something out of the show because you had no choice. Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. Um, is there a wide variance in terms of the back backstage space, at least on Broadway? Oh, my God, yes. Yeah. You know, you think about one of the great theaters is no longer a theater, the Mark Hellinger Theater, which is, you know, where the, the church is. Yeah. We snuck <sighs> in to peek. Uh, Isn't it beautiful? Because that's where I picked up Timbuktu. I just, I ended the, the Broadway right. show that's there. That's right. Mm -hmm. uh, it's anyhow, a magnificent. Magnificent and. And magnificent lobby. Yes. The I lobby totally of that agree. theater is spectacular. That's one of the deepest theaters in New York City. My memory is 55 feet. But they actually added a section of grid um, to it to, to extend that stage. But, and by the way, the church has done a beautiful job of keeping it up. They really have. They have. I, I think it's yeah. gorgeous. They have. So yeah. when we get that theater back someday, <laughs> it will be in good shape. I flew beside that minister years ago flying to LA and for some reason I was flying first class. I don't know why, but I was, and I was sitting beside the minister. He asked me, you know, theater and blah, blah. And it came around to, he was the minister of that church. I said, well, we want it back. <laughs> and he said, we're happy to give it back. What we need is a space between 34th street and 59th street between fifth Avenue and eighth Avenue, yeah. which will seat 3000 people. people. Yeah. That's yeah. Find us that and you can have it. Yeah. Wow. I, I've actually heard that before. Yeah. 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 Um, he's got he's got that line down. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's the impossible dream. I mean, everybody wants that. Oh my God. Michael Benning tried to buy it. Yeah. And why he didn't, I don't know. Yeah, there's a lot of Yes. That's <laughs> it's just well, anyway. Um, it's a beautiful thing. They yeah. they vary radically the depth of these theaters. Most of the theaters are between thirty and thirty-five feet. They can be as little as uh, and I'm not gonna remember it. But there are many that are just shy of 30 feet. Oh, until they blew out the back wall of the St. James, James. That's right. Or yeah. frozen. I think that was 28 feet. Wow. I think it was. But they vary radically. Also, the width varies radically. And it, it depends heavily on sometimes there's no space stage right. Sometimes it's cavernous. <laughs> sometimes there's no space stage left. Sometimes it's cavernous. Yeah. So a designer has to design for that space. Mm. And you're coordinating all of that. I'm in terms of what I'm doing, hmm. allocation of well properties. That's a good question because there's no set answer to that. Mm. It's the designer's responsibility to do it. Okay, but also I always have opinions. Like for instance, on when I did the revival of Annie at the Palace, um, David Corrin's wonderful. He designed Hamilton, a wonderful designer. He wanted the designers always want to use all the space on right. stage for their set, and they should. Um, so it went right to the back wall. And I said to Dave, we have to have a crossover. And uh, I said, well, you can't have one. And I said, we have dogs in the show. And he said, well, they can go through the basement. I said, it's a spiral staircase on stage left. Dogs don't go down spiral staircases. And so we, he put in finally a crossover. But having that knowledge, say, you know, there are things like that that I, that I do. It's just not just going to keep your eyes open. You go and look at the space and you say, all right, that can't work. You, you learned the dog spiral staircase thing, though, from the Annie tour, correct? No. Or did we you just know any. that? No. Well, I knew I had dogs. Okay. And I've never seen it. Have you ever seen a dog go down a spiral staircase? No. no. no I would <laughs> never think of that. I, it would never occur to me. But, yeah, I guess, I guess you're so right. So, anyhow. But, and David was, it made everybody's reasonable. 
The great thing I got to say about the theater, there are very few people doing these. I mean, in terms of number of people on any given production, there aren't that many people. And everybody can sit down in a room and has, hash things out. I did a television series with Nichols one time called The Thorns, which was a huge failure. And there would be, like, it seemed like hundreds of people, you know. But I love the theater because you can sit like reasonable people like we are and talk about it. Well, also, what would be the point of hiring somebody with your expertise and your years of knowledge and then not listening to you? Well, I feel like, I mean, yes, of course, <laughs> of course, as I said that and I heard the words come out of my mouth. But I feel like in the theater, when you're talking about a small group of people trying to put on, you know, this impossible task, really, if you think about it, of course they're going to they're going to listen to you and they're going to build a pass through in the back and do all the I things. I wish I wish it were true and I but I have a wonderful girlfriend named Pam Remler and who's also a dancer and now a stage manager. But she always points out to me that I have to be careful about who how forceful I make my opinions because sometimes people don't want those opinions. Right. You know, so I'm I'm careful now. You know what I mean? I'm also very careful with people who some people have more knowledge than others. And sometimes you run into producers, especially, you know, who are relative novices in the theater. They, they don't want to be told how to do things. Right. So I'm very careful about that now. Well, I would imagine as Hollywood creeps into Broadway a little bit more with all of the uh, film adaptations that are becoming musicals and big corporations come in, I would imagine there's a dance that you have to do with, with those entities because they are new to the theater. And as you were saying earlier about the politics of the job, that's part of the politics of the job. Yeah. That is what I want to do is not so much be right, but I want to make sure the show works. Right. That's my job. Yeah. You know, it doesn't matter whether I'm right or not. Right. But just, it just, it, yeah, it just helps that you're right most of the time, right? <laughs> well, uh, I think I am. Yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> well, and I, and I would imagine the part of that is um, surrounding yourself with people who you can trust and oh, who you know God, and yes. building that team. And so d does the PSM have authority in terms of pick, picking the personnel who are backstage or is that, is that someone else who makes I those calls? I always choose my own assistants. Mm -hmm. That is, it's really part of my, I, not necessarily my, it's not written in the contract, but when I'm talking about the job, I have to be able to hire my own assistants. There's a fellow named Jim Woolley that I started working with on Timbuktu on the road, 1978, because he knew more than I did about stage management. And so Good he person was, to hire. <laughs> exactly. He was my first assistant, and we yeah. worked together. We still, the last one thing we did together was Brigadoon at City Center last year. So we're still working together. I think we've done 18 or 19 Broadway shows together. But I work with people that I trust. And um, a lot of times, you know, you grow people, too, from production assistant to second assistant to first assistant to replacing you on a show. And that's the idea. You want to grow people. So, yeah, I'm, I have to have people around me who also tell me the truth about things. I don't want people to be like, I can't say that to him. I want people to say everything to me. Yeah. How many people are typically involved behind the scenes on a nightly basis for a Broadway show? More than on stage. There are always more people backstage than there are on stage. On a musical, there are three or four stage managers on a show. Three is the minimum on a musical. Two is the minimum on a play. And um, there's a house crew, you know, which is always four or five people. And they work for the theater or for the production? The house crew works for the theater. They're responsible for the building. And then usually have what's called the pink contract crew, which are the the crew heads who are responsible to the production. And, um, and the house heads then hire the local stagehands. But on a show like uh, Manny Eisenberg always said, you know, on a musical, there are usually 250 people working on a musical. 
And, but that includes the press department too. You know, it includes everybody, wardrobe, front of house staff, it includes everybody. But I was about, and Manny was always loath to close a show because I said, I'm going to put 250 people out of work. But there are, there are always more people backstage than there are on stage. And they're the sort of the unsung heroes, right? Because <laughs> they don't get to take a bow. Well, I'll end. tell you what, anytime somebody disses a stagehand, I will point out to them, stagehands will risk their lives for the show. They are the only ones who will do that. And I've had a number of times in my career when stagehands have done things unbelievably dangerous just to keep the show running. And there are, it was, <laughs> when I was doing Sunset Boulevard in um, LA, the, the original one, the, um, some of the, the actors were very dissy about stagehands especially our pink contract crew. So I was having a, um, a meeting with everybody, the cast and crew one time, and I said, oh, by the way, how many master's degrees do we have here? And almost the entire pink contract crew put up their hands. <laughs> and I think one or two actors did. I said, okay, we'll move on now. Wow. Okay. Oh, yeah. That put them in their place. Wow, that's <laughs> yeah. hysterical. I just wanted them, we have to respect the people we work with, everybody. Yeah. We have to, I mean, this theater, the theater business is about respect. And if we can respect each other, then we can tell the story. If people don't respect each other, we can't tell the story. Mm -hmm. That's well said. Well, it seems to me that on a nightly basis, um, you're almost uh, doing a high wire act, right? Because there's a million things that could go wrong and there's a million things you can't account for. Um, and I imagine that can be very stressful. It can, but I, I sort of look at it the other way because it can also be unbelievably satisfying. I just did this little play called Seawall of Life yes. <laughs> with uh, Jake Gyllenhaal and Tom Sturridge. And it was so satisfying. I can't tell you, every night I watched that show. And those two men, each one alone on the stage, dealing with an audience as their acting partner, did things that moved me more than I can tell you. You know, and I think about, um, I did Sunny in the Park with George, also with Jake, that revival. I was so moved by that. And I played um, the, you know, uh, Move On, you know. Mm -hmm. I played that for my mom one time, who at the time was 95 years old. And she said, that's my story. Oh. And she, anyhow, the theater to me, it is my church. I, I have gone places in the world. I've read books. I've met people. I've done things that could never possibly happen if I weren't in the theater. So I understand that there are stressful and difficult things sometimes. But to me, that's not what it's about at all. It's about, it's given me back much, much more than I have ever taken from it. And I'm grateful. I'm curious, um, over the course of your career, from the time that you started to the present, what are the biggest changes that you have observed in the way that productions happen? You guys both ask very good questions. <laughs> because that's, that's, I think every five years in the theater, my perceptive, Perception is I have to reinvent myself every five years because the, the business changes so radically. Right. 2008, when the market crashed and you know, everything went wrong, suddenly the big money people came into the theater. And I have to say, I think the artists lost control for a long time. It was all about the money people dictating terms. And we have some very good money people in the business too, but also some, as I said, novices who just want to dictate the terms. I was very happy when Hamilton happened because I think it, the, the pendulum is swinging back, that the artists, I mean, Lin-Manuel, you can't find a better artist than Lin-Manuel. He's it, as far as I'm concerned. And he is an artist who has taken charge of the theater again. And I think more and more, we're going to see that now because this artist and other artists are making money for people, you know. Um, in, 
in a show like Hamilton, where I expect everybody said he was crazy, right? You're crazy to like who wants a hip hop version of this? Like, I, but he's proven to the world that 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 it can be successful, which is what you're saying. So hopefully, we'll see a lot more of these kinds of. Uh, Artist-driven, yeah. ris- riskier projects. Correct. I hope so. I, I really hope so. You look at Slave Play, for instance, which to me is not only a great play, but a great experience in the theater. And I'm still talking about it with people. Yeah. So this is an artist, Jeremy O'Harris, right? Yep. Who This is an artist who is now changing the conversation on Broadway. And I really hope that John Tiffany, I think, is changing the conversation on Broadway. Uh, you know, you look at Harry Potter and you look at some of the things that he's done. Really, anyhow, I hope, when I got into the theater, it was, um, you know, it was all about, um, you know, Bob Fosse and uh, Michael Bennett and, and you know, everybody, Tommy Toon. The artists were in charge. There was no question the artists were in charge. And I think the pendulum is starting to swing back. But in answer to your question, um, I've had to adapt myself according to the people with whom I'm speaking. Because um, I grew up with Manny Eisenberg, was one of my mentors, Manny, Mike, Gene Sachs, Pete Feller, a name that nobody knows anymore. But at Manny's office, we would get into the room and argue about how to do the show. And then Manny, at the end of it, would hear everybody say, okay, thanks everybody, here's what we're gonna do. And it was great, we all got it off our chest. Nobody wants to argue anymore. Everybody wants to be nice about things. And so I'm nice now. You know what I mean? Because people don't want it. They think you're being a jerk if you want to argue a point. But I enjoyed that sort of theater. And, you know, so did Mike and Gene Sachs and all those people that I love. So does Sam Mendes. He loves to argue a point, you know? And good playwrights. Neil Simon loved to argue points. He was, he, Neil was so great. I couldn't say enough good things about him. We'd be working on a scene. Gene would be directing the scene. And Neil was always in the room. And if Gene was having trouble with the scene and trying it like 10 different ways, funny, and he would stand up and say, this is not your problem. This is my problem. I'll go home and rewrite it. I'll be back tomorrow. You know, everybody took responsibility for their own part as opposed to saying, you know what he did? You know what that person did? If we did this. So I'm always adapting. And I encourage my students up at Columbia that the theater that I'm preparing you for now won't exist in five years. So you have to keep looking at what's around you if you want to keep a career going. You look at Madonna, whom I admire almost as much as any human being on earth. She's reinvented herself so many times. You know my Madonna story? No. I have, okay. But please, please tell. tell. All right, yes. it's, it's, really, it's really quick. I did a flop called Rock and Roll the First 5,000 Years at the St. James, yeah. like 1983 or something like that. I have the window card. Yes. Do you yeah, really? Do. Yes. So do I, the guitar? <laughs> yeah. Anyhow, it's, it's the statue of David holding a guitar. Yeah. Anyhow, um, huge flop. And um, the, it was nine people who had to sing all the great rock and roll songs from Bo Diddley through at the time, the plasmatics and the police. So, and um, play the musical instruments. The hardest things to cast were the two swings. The male swing was a guy named Rich Hebert, who, with whom I've worked a number of times since. The female swing was a, um, a woman named Madonna Ciccone, who lived on Riverside Drive at the time. And I was working for Marvin Krauss, who was the general manager. And, and because it was not an equity show, I was doing the signing of the contracts. So, Miss Jacconi came up and she said, Peter, I can't take the show. I got a manager now and he wants me to come out to California to do this cover record. I said, are you crazy? You're going to give a Broadway show as a swing to go out and do some cover record?
Well, like a year later, I'm walking down Bleecker Street, and I walk past a record store, and then it says, Madonna. So <laughs> if Madonna had listened to me, she could be a swing on Broadway right, today. Exactly. <laughs> right. Uh, she'd be a Cato waiter. Yeah. She might have swung her way out. Uh, you know? wow. But I admire her because she's reinvented herself all right. the time. I think the great people in the business, those who last, reinvent themselves. Mm. You have to. And it sounds to me like, I mean, a repeated theme as you're talking through all the different facets of your work is perception and being open to perceiving both, you know, technical issues, but also human resources issues and being receptive and perceptive of new information and technology advancing. So much of what I'm hearing is that how key that is to the and success of the it's role. all the same thing. It's serving the event. What you're doing is serving the play and the event that's going on on stage. And whatever way you can serve it, you have to do it. So sometimes it's technical, sometimes it's artistic, right. sometimes it's, it's as, as you say, human resources, right. you know? And sometimes it's just arguing with the house manager about a leak backstage, you know? <laughs> it's, it's all those things, yeah. but it's serving the event. Yeah. And that's what keeps it so interesting. And interesting for me. Right. It's a selfish thing. Right. I'm very interested in what I do. I really like it. Yeah. You know, I'm old now. And so I, I'm aging out of the business. And it isn't that I'm I mean, okay financially, but I, I like it. And so I want to keep doing it as long as I can because I actually like it. Mm. Well, you, you've touched on something just now, um, and that is sort of the, the physical strain of, of mm -hmm. the work, right? I mean, if you really think about it, everyone who's involved in a show, you're working at night. Mm -hmm. uh, you're, you know, your most intense time of the day is between, you know, 8 and 10.30 if it's a musical, right? Yeah. Um, and that, you know, has a certain effect on your social life and your not, you know, how you live the rest of your life. Um, but also with rehearsals during the day, I mean, I imagine as a stage manager, your day can be 16 hours mm -hmm. easily, That's right. That's right? right. Well, in production, you think when you're in production, we're usually there at 9 in the morning when you leave at 1 in the morning. Yeah. And that can go on for four or five weeks. Right. You know, like that. So I do take care of myself. Yeah. I mean, I think about my stamina and I test myself with my stamina all the time to make sure that I can still do the job that needs to be done. But I do, I talk to my students about this all the time. You have to take care of yourself. Yeah. You have to eat well, you've got enough sleep, you have to, you know, and have a life outside the theater. You right. can't, it can't be 100% theater or you'll burn out pretty quickly. Mm. But you, it's funny, you, you anticipated my question. So you, you really have to almost train in a way. <laughs> well, I do exercises every right. day. I stretch yeah. every day. I, yeah. I eat well. I do, you know, mm -hmm. I do all those things. Also because um, I want to have a social life in addition to, you know, having a work life. So it's hard because the theater can be so involving that you don't do anything else. You have to be very careful about that because it will, you know, that'll burn you out pretty quickly. But I also think it, it goes back to what you said a moment ago, which is you really love what you do, right? Not everybody can say that in their life, right? Not everybody loves the job that they go to every day. Most people don't. I think if you were to pull the average person, they work because, you know, we all have bills. But you genuinely love what you do. Yeah. And I think that must help with the day-to-day you know, grueling aspects of what you do. You genuinely love it, so you figure out a way to make it work. Right, there are right? moments, you, of course, you hate it. You know, when things go, there are moments where you hate it. But in general, I really like it. It's so interesting, I can't tell you. My job is never the same day to day, ever once. Yeah. And so it's interesting to me. You know, I get there and I think, okay, I need to figure this thing out. And I really like it. I also like the people I work with. I really respect actors. I really respect the whole creative process and the creative team. 
Right. It's great. The only time I have trouble is when people don't respect the process or the team or right. people are disrespectful. Right. I, I really don't like it. Right. Well, you, you, it's interesting because I think I, until we sat down and chatted, I didn't think of a production stage manager or stage manager as being a particularly creative job, but it's a very creative job. It is exactly, it's, it's just another piece of the, the creative total of putting up a piece of theater. And I think that's fascinating because I don't, I don't, I've never thought of it in those terms before. I actually, this is going to sound slightly pretentious, but I think of it as a design function because what you're doing in addition to just the, just the calling script we were talking about, the way in which you choose to lay out the show to call it is a design function that is, it can be done literally a hundred different ways. Right. And a design function sense that you are setting the tone for how the show is going to operate backstage. And it makes a huge difference. Like, for instance, I don't believe that people should feel that they're in jail backstage. So there are a lot of equity rules about how many personal days you can have, things like that. I'm very flexible about those things because I want people to feel they can have a life and then they'll stay. When you're a theater goer, do you, um, can you sense or get any idea of what's going on backstage from just sitting in the audience? I don't want to. I <laughs> mean, um, you know, I love going to the theater. I just went last night to go see uh, One and Two. Yes. Oh, my and gosh. We I, saw that together. Did yeah. you? Yeah. Yeah. That's remarkable. Anyhow, I had no sense of anything. I didn't think about anything until the blood went on the walls. Mm. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and then I thought, oh, boy, that's going to be hard to get off. Yeah, you know, somebody's got to clean that But up. then I had to, like, get myself out of that for yeah, a second. Yeah. I don't want to think about all I want is to have the experience that the, that creative team wanted to present to me. And I love it when I don't think about anything else. The great thing about Hamilton for me, the great thing, was that I was overwhelmed with how beautiful, thrilling, it was everything to me. I thought, I have also now gone back and I think I've read every Neil Chernow book except for The Warburgs. I, I haven't read that <laughs> one, but... I mean, it put me on to Neil Chernow. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I don't want to have that experience. I don't right. want to be judgmental. I often am judgmental, but it means that the story's not being told properly. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say, I mean, it seems like, like it's, a, it's a sign of, of the success of the production that you're not thinking yeah, about exactly. how, how it's being made. But right? I don't go in trying to think about those things. I right. don't. I don't want to be judgmental. I want to be a theater goer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have the same experience, you know, as someone I, I, I read about the theater as, you know, from a critical standpoint. Uh, and every once in a while I say that I'm, I'm attending the theater as a civilian, meaning I'm, I'm taking off my critic hat yeah. and I'm here to just enjoy the show yeah. and not to have to write about it. You yeah. Know? So I, I can relate to that idea. Because going to the, you'd be surprised how many professionals don't go to the theater. You'd mm. be surprised. Many of my colleagues don't go to the theater. I go all the time. I love going to the theater. It's the reason... Listen, I got an MFA so I could go back and teach in Hawaii. I wanted to go back and teach at the University of Hawaii. I can never leave New York. I mean, how can I give, you know, how can you give up the theater? Right. You can't. I'm yeah. curious, and you, you've, you've alluded to a couple of things, which could be the answer, but what would be the advice that you would give to someone who is younger and wants to sort of do what you do? Well, if you could do anything else, do it. <laughs> because I think this is not, the theater is not, for Charlie, you like that one, right? Uh, the the theater is not for everybody. Um, it's hard and it's often cruel. There are a lot of cruelties that happen in the theater, but I think the for me the the pleasure of it, the the love I feel for it, overwhelms everything else. 
And so I think people who want to get into theater to make a lot of money, don't do that. You're not going to. People get into the theater because they want to be famous. The chances are you're not going to be. And if you are famous, talk to a famous person and see how great that is. It's horrible. You can't go anywhere. You can't do anything. You know what I mean? You have to get into the theater because you like the theater itself. It has to speak to you in some way. Look, we're all misfits, right? Yeah. There's everybody in the theater is a misfit as far as I'm concerned. This is where we belong. We misfits belong here. And once you find that you belong in that, in that place, in that theater business, in whatever it is, whatever area you're going to go into, you don't have a choice then. You know? This is... I'm, I, I actually believe that the theater taps people. You, come with me. You, come with me. I believe that. I know it sounds sort of crazy when I say it, so you might want to cut this part out. But... I think that most people don't belong in the theater, but those who do don't seem to have a choice. And I'm grateful I didn't have a choice. Doesn't sound crazy at all. Not at all. Um, we have one final question, okay. and that question is, uh, was there a show or an experience that made you want to work in the theater when you were younger? When I was about five, I grew up in Ohio. We were living in Cleveland at the time, and I went to Kane Park, um, the outdoor theater there, and I saw a production of, I think it was Hansel and Gretel, and there was a girl in it who was so pretty. I thought, <laughs> wow, I, I want to do that. Wow. <laughs> it's always a pretty girl, isn't it? It is. Yeah. And I also thought in college, I started out to be a lawyer because my dad was a lawyer, and I thought, well, I'm just not interested in this. And then I thought, oh, the theater. Yeah, okay, well, I could sleep late. That's where all the girls are. You know, the parties seem good. Well, you know, I had... And I'd always done things like that, you know, since in grade school and things like that. But then once I got into it, I found how interesting it actually was. It's <laughs> funny, you're, you're, you're not only you're sitting across from a, a, a theater critic, but you're also sitting across from a, a, a trained lawyer. A trained yeah. lawyer. Oh, is that right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but the theater's certified. tapped me. You yeah. Know? Wow. Well, the theater calls you. Yeah. It's what you said. It picks yeah. you and you. No, it's, you. It's so real. But well, the show that just, I have to say it, the show that changed my life was Hurley Burley. Because I've been doing, um, uh, I, had two, I have four children, two marriages, both divorced twice. Um, that's the other problem with the theater sometimes, yeah. <laughs> you don't have time. But um, I had two kids in college, and I was on tour with Zorba, which was a miserable experience for me. Mm. And I quit the show um, just because I couldn't stand the, some of the circumstances on the show. Anyhow, I got a call from Peter Neufeld, a general manager, saying, I got this show for you. And uh, I want to see if you're interested. It goes out of town to Chicago, to the Goodman Theater, pays $300 a week. There's no per diem. The show can't come into New York. It's five hours long and has all these movie stars in it who are going to be really problematic. And, he's, and I said, why would I take a show like that? He said, Mike Nichols is directing it. And I said, I'll take it. <laughs> and Hurley Burley and Mike Nichols changed my whole life. Wow. And you went on to work with Mike how many times? I mean, I was trying to count on the way down. Yeah. I think eight or nine, wow. including the television show. But I, I'm not really, sh I'm not really sure. I should yeah. actually add it up sometime. <laughs> but Mike changed my whole life. Yeah, incredible. Well, what well, a good person to change your life. You bet right? it was. <laughs> and thank you for um, being so generous with your time and sharing with us so much insight. You about guys ask good questions. I, mean, I really enjoyed you. this. <laughs> thank you so, so much. did we. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. My pleasure. Because sometimes it's not fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we try to make it fun. I mean, we go. love theater. Yeah. You know, we, yeah. we, it's what well, you we were saying. Well, we all share that, don't exactly. we? Well, yeah. Why else, why else would we be here? I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, that's very true. Well, thank that you. Is, okay, thank pleasure, you. fellas.
That's our show. Thanks for listening. You can hear us anytime on iTunes. The Fabulous Invalid is a production of O&M Etc. and The Fabulous Invalid LLC and a proud member of the Broadway Podcast Network. Our theme music is by Lucky Chops. Today's episode was edited and engineered by Aaron Kaufman and Charles Van Kirk. Find us online at thefabulousinvalid.com and on social media at Fabulous Invalid and on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever you find your podcasts. And be sure to tune in next Wednesday. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.